Welcome, witches and ghouls. We are pleased to say that we are part of the Morbidly Beautiful Podcast Network and family. Morbidly Beautiful is your macabre home away from home with horror news, reviews, editorials, and more. Morbidly Beautiful supports everyone in the horror community from special effects artists, indie filmmakers, writers, women, LGBTQ folks, and so much more. And we are so happy to be part of the spooky team. Please go to morbidlybeautiful.com to find out more. And now, on with the show. Spin on your podcast, a monthly horror podcast brought to you by the Spinsters of Horror. This is a time once a month where Jess puts down her bloody knitting needles and I step away from the TV to discuss horror movies and sometimes other horror mediums with thoughtful analysis, research, and passion. In this episode, we are starting our series on 1990s horror villains with Candyman. We are also celebrating Black History Month by exploring this classic along with its sequels. So pick your poison and listen on if you dare. Be my victim. I am the writing on the wall, the whisper in the classroom. Without these things, I am nothing. So now I must shed innocent blood. Come with me. So Jess, why do we choose this series, these films, these themes? Start us off. Well, I know like obviously it well we started in February on not only just to celebrate Black History Month too for the first time for Spencers of Horror, but as well we both feel, I know for myself, um, but I feel like you do as well, think that this is a very influential film from the nineties. Um, we have Tony Todd as the candy man who is I want to say like a memorable villain question mark because is he a villain or is he really a hero so mm-hmm. where where do we go in terms of that and then there's just so much in the original Candyman that can be talked about you know just so many different elements and themes and symbolism that you just it's still a movie that is influential I feel to this day and I, like I said it still chills me to this day yeah and also 90s horror love yes, it yes. absolutely love it and I love doing themed episodes and series so my idea was like Let's go back to the 90s. We've done 80s horror villains. We did that series. So we covered Halloween franchise, Friday the 13th franchise, and Nightmare on Elm Street. So now we're jumping into the 90s to talk about those prolific killers of of the 90s. And yes, echoing the sentiments of celebrating Black History Month with an iconic, classic 90s horror movie. Have you ever heard of Candyman? If you look in the mirror, you say his name five times. In cities everywhere... Candyman? They whisper his name. Right. Candyman. It's just a story. Candyman. Candyman. Just a ghost story. Candyman. An entire community starts attributing the daily horrors of their lives to a mythical figure. The legend first appeared in 1890. He was attacked mutilated and burned to death. Poor Candyman. Helen, a woman died in there. Leave it. Everyone knows he isn't real. That's modern oral folklore. 
everyone except Helen Lyle. Where did I? It ain't safe around here. I don't scare too easy. Wanna know about Ruthie Jean? They ain't never gonna catch him. Who? Candyman. Who is that? I came for you. Do I know you? Now she is about to discover. Helen? Mystery. You're sick. What's behind the legend? Listen, he's under the bed! And most terrifying of all, come with me. What's behind the mirror? He's here. Candyman, you don't have to believe. Just beware. So moving on, and finally, I can actually tell my Candyman story when we're talking about Candyman. Yay! I brought up my Candyman story multiple times for the last almost three years. So my story around Candyman is that I watched it probably in 92, 93 when it came out for rental on VHS. And I remember sitting on the floor with my best friend Tamara at the time and watching it on like a medium size, like rear projection like tube tv one of those old 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 school tvs we were watching it cuddled up with our blankets and the moment where Candyman's hook comes flying out of the mirror <gasps> yeah we jumped and screamed yep. bloody murder <laughs> i smacked the tv shut it off we went running down the stairs and her mom's just like what is going on we're like the candy man and like oh my god in the mirrors and he came out of the mirror and like we were so freaked out oh so now we know where your fear of mirrors come from <laughs> <laughs> stemming from when i was like a 11 year old girl and eventually we calmed down went upstairs covered her massive mirror she has in her bedroom Put the movie back on and finished it. But it is in my like top 10 horror films of all time. I've loved it since then. It still scares me. Well, at least I guess now I have like anticipatory dread because I know what's coming. I know what spooks me. And those jump scares still get me sometimes like watching it. I jumped the other day when I was watching it. Oh, so yeah. it just, it, it stays with you. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, for sure. That, I had always heard about Candyman and heard how scary it was. And I remember seeing, walking through Blockbuster and stuff like that, like seeing the imagery and being like, ooh, like that's, that's too scary for me. So my story with Candyman <laughs> obviously involves Kelly because <laughs> years, a long, long, long time ago when I was like with my, my ex-boyfriend Noah at the time, where it was my time, it was my turn to like choose a horror movie and stuff like that. So in Kelly's dark dungeon of a basement, we put on Candyman. And I am mm-hmm. on this couch wedged between my boyfriend and her, both people who have seen, who are horror fans and have seen this movie a bunch of times. And I am literally like white knuckling it through this entire movie. And I'm so scared. <laughs> and both Kelly and my ex there at the time jumped and scared me. Like they did, they yeah. did those one of the things when like, and you know what's scary scene, like a jump scene's gonna come up and they both did this thing where like, and different times, and it was, what really got me upset was that <laughs> Kelly did it the first time and it was like she like the scary jump scene comes and she touched me and I jumped even harder that happened yeah. and then later on in the movie my my ex did it to me too and I still got caught yeah and then they both fell asleep on me during this movie Le- leaving you alone to face Candyman left me in alone the dark. to face Candyman in the dark 
That's my story with Candyman. Love it. That was almost 15 years ago now. Yes, it was. Yeah, your first apartment in Toronto. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So what do you like about Candyman, the OG Candyman? Oh, what I like about the OG Candyman is like, there's so much I love about this film. The cinematography, the score. I realized in Mm -hmm. doing research for uh, this, um, about the adaptation, because I read the short story um, last year, there is actually dialogue straight from the short short story, which Mm -hmm. I love. A lot of Candyman's line. The complexity Mm -hmm. of the characters, our relationships, and then the fact that it has such a strong horror movie that has such a strong um, social commentary that Mm -hmm. it still chills me to this day watching it. Mm -hmm. Like, Mm -hmm. it's one of those movies that I will watch in the dark, and yes, it has, like, the jump scares and the super supernatural element to it and it you know makes things creepy about mirrors but then it just has so much truth and reality to it that just still makes you unnerved because you're like oh nothing's really changed absolutely so i echo a lot of those sentiments um i love the premise the score the philip glass score is one of my favorites that Candyman theme is iconic uh, tony todd holy crap just like just lull me to sleep with that amazing voice and who chills Every yes. time he talks. Yeah. Absolutely. Every single time. That first time that he <gasps> in meets the Helen. parking garage. Helen. I'm just like, ooh, the hair on the back of my neck starts standing up. Mm. Cinematography. This movie is just like beautifully made. I love it. It's scary. Like objectively a scary movie. Jump scares. I love watching movies from the 90s when they're doing their research on the microfiche. I just I really miss those days of research in movies <laughs> where they're like going to the library and like the dusty old stacks yeah, and yeah. like the basement and the, and the microfiche. And now it's everybody's just like, I'm jumping on Google. Yeah. Oh, the days of our like, youth, what we used to do. <laughs> uh, it's it's just like the research mode aspect of things are really less interesting. Also, side note, Buffy, when they do research, they're always pulling out the old books and like, you know, Willow is trying to update everyone by looking online. But that was very new. So we're like, ooh, what's online? You know, <laughs> yeah. Now it's just like a thing we take for granted. We're just like, oh, it's Absolutely. online. Just to look, just yeah. Google it. Google it. Just is fucking a Google term. it, man. <laughs> <laughs> I just lost so much of its fucking romanticism. Yeah. So, and then of course the social commentary, which is why we're here today to talk about it. So, yeah. is there anything you dislike about this film? One thing I dislike. One thing I just thought was really silly about it. I really dislike Trevor. Oh. Trevor is a pile of trash garbage, and I can't fucking stand him. I'm he has like this brilliant, wonderful wife. Mm-hmm. And he's just like such a fucking cliche. Like I can't. Yeah. Cliche of toxic masculinity and egotism and just everything. And it just like, and that's the one thing like, I dislike about that too is Trevor and um, Purcell, the uh, guy at the dinner table with Bernadette and Helen. And he like challenges and stuff like that. And he's such a jerk. And it's just oh, like that, that yes. it's like that academic superiority like yep. mm, you're never gonna you're never gonna top my work and like you know especially mm-hmm. um between uh male and female peers in the in the academia yeah. world women have to work so much harder to you know protect their work and to be published and to be recognized and they always have their male peers you're like mm, i've done better you're not gonna yeah. you're not gonna change or do anything so yeah that's what i dislike about it too real. Yeah, that's too fair. real of an Purcell. experience. Yeah, yeah. I dislike him more in the second film. Oh yeah, because um, he ugh, he's just gross. And the thing that I thought was strange is why is Candyman sleeping when he is a supernatural being? Also, why is he breathing if he is not a real person? You know how Helen sneaks yeah. up on him, try to kill him. Like, why is he sleeping? This is silly. 
Yeah, it, like clearly it's a ploy. Like he's clearly awake. He's just got his eyes closed to yeah. make her think that he's vulnerable. That she that she snuck yeah. upon the supernatural being. That technically, if she were yeah. to stab him, he would disappear. Yeah, I guess it kind of just like this time around. It kind of just took me out of it for a minute. I was mm. like, nope, <laughs> no. Nope. You're like movie logic. I need to put. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely not like a negative for the movie, but it's just like really weird. Yeah. To me. Anyways, <laughs> how about you? Besides Purcell and Trevor, anything else do you, do you dislike about Candyman? No, that, those are the two that that bother me. All right, all right. So let's get into chatting about uh, Candyman, the first film. Like we said, we're going to talk about all three of them, but we're going to start with number one. And what I also love about Candyman is that it is based off of another horror legend, Clive Barker, and it's based off of Clive Barker's uh, short story called The Forbidden, and it's found in his Books of Blood series from 1984. And what's nice, and I read this last year and I loved it. It was so really good because The Forbidden takes place in Liverpool, which is where Clive Barker had came from. And it's about a student, Helen, who discovers graffiti in a housing estate and the Candyman makes her her latest uh, victim. So yeah. The Forbidden, this story is more based off of class. And then in what uh, Bernard Rose did was make it about um, racism, whereas mm-hmm. The Forbidden was focusing on the class divide in uh, Parker's uh, native uh, Liverpool and how the graffiti just as it represented in the film was representing like the lower classes lashing out at the system that both like abandoned and failed them at the same mm-hmm. time too and mm-hmm. we get the same character of Helen she's very much like the movie she's she has an empathy towards um, her subjects as you because she's an academic um, in the beginning of the film but because she has this um, obsession to prove herself to her cons- condescending colleagues mm-hmm. in the film we have Trevor and Purcell she will do what she can at the expense of others so she's mm-hmm. so that's still comes up but what I love about the 1990 film is that when this book came to the attention of music video director Bernard Rose he really wanted to do a horror movie that dealt with social issues and he saw that in The Forbidden so he approached Clive Barker which is awesome because Clive Barker was actually involved in developing the story and Mm -hmm. changing the setting Mm -hmm. from Liverpool to Cabrini Green and Chicago to bring in that financial backing and it was just Mm -hmm. like so it was like I love the fact that Clive Barker was still involved in creating the movie and then decided you know, since we're going to set this in urban America, let's uh, let's address an issue that people know very well, which is mm-hmm. you know financial instability and racism. Mm-hmm. And I have mm-hmm. a quote from Bernard Rose in Fangoria at the time, and he says, "Candyman's thrust is metaphysical instead of political. My element of social criticism asks how people can be expected to live in squalor because the housing authority has allowed Cabrini Green to rot instead of trying to maintain it. But Candyman really poses the question that if God exists because we believe in him, what would happen?" if we worship, if the worshiping of God is ceased. People have a deep need to believe in something beyond themselves, especially when we're living in an appalling place like Cabrini Green. They could be shot at any time, but the creature like Candyman could do something far worse to them. That belief allows people to dodge bullets in the stairwells. And I just thought that was like a really chilling quote Mm. that he had about Mm -hmm. the film and his work on it and working with Clive Barker. So what do you think of like the adaptation of that story? Like, do you like the changes? Do you think it's pretty faithful? Because I haven't read The Forbidden, so I'm, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on the, the adaptation of it. It's pretty faithful in the sense of you get the same character of Helen and the Candyman, the mythos of Candyman, and she eventually kind of goes insane herself. And, you know, the mm-hmm. mystery, but at the end of her, the result of her death is kind of in a mystery at the end because she's like, she's questioning her sanity. And I think that's quite faithful in itself towards the movie. And I love the adaptation 
of the movie because the the way they did it was if they were to film the forbidden as it was like okay setting it up in you know liverpool england and then dealing with issues of classism i think it would have kind of resonated with the society in the 1990s but i don't think it would have as much and so changing the Mm -hmm. setting and dealing with you know classism still but in the sense of racism makes Mm -hmm. it a more poignant and influential movie and commentary as to what clive barker was trying to bring so and Mm -hmm. i love the fact that clive barker was involved and i know i keep emphasizing Mm -hmm. that but i think it's so important when authors of original works can still be involved in creating something else and so that the integrity of their work is still respected even if people start to make changes Mm -hmm. agreed yeah no that's a great point so let's uh get into talking about mirrors so for this episode we decided to focus on mirrors since that is uh huge in the folklore of Candyman. uh so mirrors there's kind of three main ways that mirrors are important in in film in literature and how they're used you know spirituality wise just in general usage wise so number one the usage of mirrors um, they can demonstrate a character's dual nature so often they reveal the character's either evil or bad nature when otherwise that character appears to be good two mirrors can be used to emphasize secrecy or to reveal secrets and Mm. three the usage of mirrors can be passages to another world the other world the underworld just another kind of like gateway to a different world and that's kind of where we bring all of our discussion surrounding the Candyman series and the the legend of Candyman together yeah and then like there's so interesting that mirrors are represented in that way in various films because there's so much superstition around mirrors and when we I it was interesting because like I would always kind of have a fear of a mirror and you always hear Mm -hmm. about the superstition of don't break a mirror yet seven years bad luck but when we were doing more research into the mythology around mirrors and Mm -hmm. finding out what actually people believe in different customs I was like oh wow this is super interesting Mm -hmm. you know the mythology of that comes from uh, Rome where it's about uh, Vulcan he was a Roman blacksmith and he was also the god of fire he created a magic mirror that was able to show the past present and future to his wife Venus the goddess of love but she ends up using that mirror to hide the fact that she's carrying on an affair with a god of war Um, there's also the myth of Perseus using the mirror to defeat Medusa by reflecting her monstrous gaze Mm. back to her right so there's like that mythology there Mm -hmm. and then a lot of um, superstitions around mirrors so people believe that your souls could get trapped in mirrors hanging a mirror opposite a door helps keep evil entities out of your home which I looked I actually checked I have a mirror hanging in front of my door and I did not realize that I did that Ooh. you know people have concerns <laughs> of mirrors being used by supernatural entities or paranormal entities to enter into your home so as like Kelly said like as a portal some there was this mythology that for within the first year of a baby being born you were never to show uh, a baby's face in the mirror because their soul would be taken they'll become soulless <laughs> no aren't they already right? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then, yeah and then there's another one but like uh, young women who gaze in the mirror for too long they would end up seeing the devil so that was to scare women from Ooh. being vain and using the because uh, it was a part of like a whole thing about vanity around women using mirrors and then witches <laughs> believe in magic we use always mirrors. comes back to always witches, comes back to witches. <laughs> and mirrors are a tool for witches we use mirrors yeah. for skyring so we use it as a tool of communication with the paranormal another way of mm-hmm. it's like another version of a Ouija board you know to find out the past present and future is a fortune telling tool so yeah mirrors 
mirrors, mirrors do a lot. are <laughs> they do and they're vital to the story obviously yeah. of Candyman or Daniel Robitaille which is his human name not his supernatural entity name um, so mirrors again they can show us a different world so you can even think of that in like an esoteric sense or you can think of it in like a literal sense when it comes to the Candyman series yeah it shows us another perspective another community a different thought process they can show us the truth but also distort the truth they can show us something that seems unreal or they can be very enlightening and again we'll wrap this all up together but that's important to the story of Candyman because we learn in Candyman 2 that Daniel Robitaille his soul was trapped in the mirror by Caroline his love his great beloved his betrothed and so she had shown his suffering face to him in the mirror and that trapped him and now he will perhaps in a way haunt generations and generations afterwards which I think is fascinating. Yeah, which is sometimes how you get haunted mirrors. They've witnessed some kind of horrific thing, event, right? And the negative energy gets trapped into the mirror. So, yeah. Yeah, oh boy. Watch Oculus. Oh, yeah, I love that movie. Oh, God, I don't like mirrors now. (laughs) (laughs) They're just so creepy. (laughs) Well, I love how, like, in elements throughout the film, we see how often mirrors are being used. Mm -hmm. I remember commenting how the time, somewhat often, when Helen uses a mirror, she uses it like a summoning device mm-hmm. and so like yeah she go back to you know that idea of a woman being a witch she uses the mirror to summon forth Candyman. we see that happen and she is kind of like when they say candy man candy man they're performing a ritual and mm-hmm. i thought that was super interesting because yep. it's so important when it comes to ritual to have that element uh, in place and then so i was kind of thinking about when us as individuals use mirrors right we use mirrors to create a new portrait of ourselves. So we look in the mirror, we use uh, makeup, we use, we're using makeup stuff like that to summon a new image of ourselves, an mm. image that we want to present out to the world. And so sometimes mm-hmm. it's really hard to fight it when you see something about yourself that's monstrous and truth in the mirror. The mirrors are great. um jess have you ever stood in front of the mirror and said Candyman five times no no i am neither have i (laughs) nope i've never done it never done it i'm superstitious i haven't even done i've never even done bloody mary like that either i remember people trying to do that at like sleepovers i would be at and be like nope nope Nope. (laughs) i also like i love spooky shit and even as an adult woman not superstitious but i still wouldn't do that. I would not stand in front of a mirror, say Candyman five times or Bloody Mary and shut out the light. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. No. (laughs) So speaking of trapping a soul in the mirror, so it's we can assume that a lot of folks have watched Candyman or know the story, but very briefly, Candyman or Daniel Robitaille was a tragic victim of racism in the late 19th century America. Cabrini Green is known as the spot where the remains of his body were buried after he was tortured and killed by a bunch of white people hired by the enraged father of Caroline, a upper class white woman who fell in love with Daniel Robitaille. He was an artist. He painted her portraits. They fell in love, had a love affair, and the community was very upset by that. So they cut off his hand with a rusty serrated blade, covered him with honey, and let the bees take him. 
So that is the story of Candyman. So what's really important in Candyman is so Cabrini Green is kind of like our haunted land. The Cabrini Green housing complex, which is a legit place in the U.S., uh, whose population mainly, again, still consists of low-income African-American folks. Uh, and this movie shows us kind of like glimpses of the neighborhoods in the early 1990s, which weren't the most they weren't the safest for folks. Gang members, yes, would hang around the front entrances. So it was quite, I guess, authentic to the experience of people living in that in that area and that time in the 90s. I'm going to go quote, dark and dirty, deserted places that you didn't dare to enter. And you get that atmospheric vibe through Candyman, the film, that this is a place that, well, our protagonist and protagonists, I feel like Bernadette is, is quite quite a prominent character as well in this. So it is very unnerving and they go into this environment, but also social media, I guess there was no social media really at the time. Sorry. But like media, just plain media is, was not very, it's not very kind to black folks. They really, really are not. And that can kind of reverberate into other populations of people thinking like, oh, no, this place actually is a really terrible place. This is a dark place. This is a scary place. You do not go here because bad things will happen. Maybe they will, maybe they won't. But that environment was, was very rich in detail that I think they did a really good job with uh, in the movie itself. Well, they make Combreeding Green its own boogeyman. Like mm-hmm. that whole atmosphere, it conjures the fear of violence and poverty and that racial antagonism that is underlying the entirety of this film. And mm-hmm. like you said, yeah, Cabrita Green, it was the most dangerous housing complex in the 1990s. And this was because as um, mm-hmm. Chicago was continuing its urbanization and gentrification, stuff like that, they end up pushing a lot of mm-hmm. the urban decay and, and the homeless and stuff like that to this one area. Um, and mm-hmm. they became very ignorant of what was around them and just ignored it and it often it was um, an impoverished black community that was run by gangs and a lot of innocent people who were just there um, because they couldn't afford anything else Mm -hmm. they lived there but they were largely ignored by the police and this is what sets up Candyman. This is what you have going through. Mm-hmm. So it makes sense that you be- you start to have like an urban legend rise from this setting because it's a reflection, mirror reflection of our collective fears of something that may exist or may not. And when we watch the film and we see Helen going to Cabrini Green and she's talking about Candyman, like she wants to believe that he exists or she's trying to show that maybe he exists, but maybe he exists as another type of boogeyman, right? We end up, you know, finding out that there actually is um, a gang leader who is using Mm -hmm. that term Candyman to strike the fear into everyone, to keep everyone kind of quiet, let them conduct their business and keep the police kind of outside, right? Because calling the police would have alerted the this candy man to them and Mm -hmm. then those people would be in danger and I just also thought and watching that scene now it's just like so prominent because how Helen treats Bernadette when they're going into Gerbreeding Green it's just like she just kind of like you know not like scoffs at her but she's just like I don't understand why you're so prepared to go into this area and it's like I almost want to like be Bernadette and be like how ignorant are you do you not realize Mm-hmm. What mm-hmm. what world mm-hmm. we're entering into? This is not our world. We're and we're invading into an area that is not going to be very welcoming to us. And so we need to be respectful, but also be prepared. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like they're both kind of going to the extremes. Like Helen is 
too nonchalant about it. And then Bernadette, I think, maybe is like too afraid to do it. Like, I I totally understand her hesitation. I myself have traveled into the U.S. a number of times. So I, again, media is not super friendly to these neighborhoods because they just, well, essentially they just villainize them. So as a white person of, I don't know what class I am, maybe middle, I don't know. I'm a vet tech. I live in a basement, so I don't know what I am. (laughs) But like I go to the U.S. and go into certain urban centers, like bigger cities. I've been to New York. I went to Indianapolis. Like I've gone to Detroit. Like I've gone to these bigger cities and even for myself, I can understand where both of these women are coming from. For me, and I'm like, nope, these are just people. Yeah, yeah. And this is this situation. It's fine. But then also, again, I feel like I've Bernadette in the back of my mind being like, well, so I see in film all the time. Also, film is not the most friendly. It just like in the back of my mind, I was like, ooh, I'm kind of spooked by this. Like I, I'm very uncomfortable because, oh, it's going to be so dangerous and maybe I shouldn't go there. And people even think that about Toronto. And then like I live here and it's really not a big deal. But that's my experience as a vet tech living in downtown Toronto. But I don't have to live in those parts of Toronto, nor do I necessarily go there because I don't necessarily per se have a reason to go there. So anyways, that's me rambling about how I feel like both of them, I totally get it. But there is this fear. And I want to kind of do a little shout out to this really, really great article that we read, which will obviously be in our Spencer's library. But it's called Taking a Look in the Mirror, The Inversion of Middle Class Fears of Urban Decay and the Representation of Racial Violence in Bernard Rose's Candyman. Such a a good, good eye-opening read. So talking about fear, in this movie, it seemed like they were, like you said, Jess, like they're tapping into this collective societal fear of the inner city of the, quote, projects and playing off. And again, we're both white women. We're white. So playing off of white middle class anxiety and revulsion of those areas. Like you can even see a little bit of the revulsion when Helen and Bernadette are walking up to the that first building, like pushing up their collars. Like yeah. You can tell like they're visibly very uncomfortable, like kind of wrapping themselves even tighter in their coats and their scarves being like, nope very uncomfortable here. Like this seems very dirty. Like I live in a very clean, you know, upper middle class condo. So kind of exploiting both, uh, I'm going to say our, because I would probably be put into this, uh, this box of white middle class people, the fear of urban decay. And like you said, like ignorance about the violence and what I think this entire series does. And it definitely starts in, in Candyman for sure. That turns that kind of idea on its head and forces us to acknowledge the history of black folks that is in the back of our mind. We know this stuff happened. So Candyman as a figure is here to remind us what happened. And even if it's through his violence, you can't forget his rage. And that's, I think, a part of what makes this movie so, so powerful. Yeah, and I think that's important how both... Helen and Bernadette, like you're saying, represent these two different ideologies, but also kind of judgments. Like yep. you said, like Helen doesn't believe that there's any difference between herself and the people yeah. at Cooperity Green, even though there is a, di- a difference, you mm-hmm. know, but she just treats them as like people who are just part of her research and she has an agenda. And she needs to, you know, yeah. have these people help them do it. But she's like, there's no there's no difference between us. Whereas, yeah, Bernadette is interesting. She's a, a black woman from her higher social class and she instantly judges the people of Cabrini Green. She goes 
goes into that high mode of, yeah. you know, have a taser, have all these things, you know, in, instantly expecting to be in trouble and she feels yeah. unsafe. And it's interesting, this article, yeah, they talked about how she kind of changes her mind a bit and softens when she sees Anne Marie's apartment and she's like, yeah. oh, okay, you know, she's, it's almost she's like she had to be acknowledging her own ingrained class yeah. prejudices, right? As a, a woman of a higher social class, black woman of a higher social class to a black woman of so, lower social class and recognizing that there are differences, yes, but there are good people here as well. Absolutely. And it's either in one of the movies or just overall, I think maybe it was in the article, but they were like, yes, it was Anne-Marie. Actually, it was literally in Candyman when she's like, we're not all like those assholes mm-hmm. downstairs. Yes. You know, like, not all like that. And like on when I watched that scene of them walking up, it could be literally any man, but it's a group of men hooting, hollering at us and catcalling us being like, what's going on? That just immediately is going to make me uncomfortable because I'm a woman. doesn't matter where you come from. You are, there's a bunch of men and I'm walking into a scenario with a bunch of them. That's, yeah. that's, that's, you know, really discomforting to watch and to be it because that happens. And we've all, I think so many of us have experienced that absolute discomfort and it's terrifying. Oh, for sure. Experience. But it makes you wonder if Helen and Bernadette were in that same situation, but it was with a group of white men. Would they have been more likely to say something? Probably. Yeah. They, yeah. yeah. I, I think yep. they would have not been afraid to be like, hey, like screw you back off type thing yeah, but because absolutely. of this ingrained tragic history that's been put into our society it's like they're even more terrified they're like oh my god yeah. this, this is foreign to us and so we cannot say or nor express any kind of way of defending ourselves because we don't we don't know what to expect when really yeah. expect the same thing anyone would do right you know yeah they'll either be jerks or they'll leave you alone Exactly. No, that's a great point. Yeah. No, treat it, treat it like maybe you don't need a whole or arsenal of weaponry, uh, but maybe have something because just in any situation as a woman going into a new unknown environment, just generally speaking, maybe just be prepared. I think maybe Helen was just like a little bit too unprepared, you know, but I think, and you brought this up earlier about Helen and her ambition and in the academic world, yeah, she has to prove herself. So like, she's just like, no. I need to do this. So she's very driven. She's very ambitious. And she she does say to that little boy, Jake, that she's like, I don't scare so easily. And I was like, no, she doesn't. Like, she's quite unfussed. Uh, unplussed, nonplussed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, going to that situation, going into that like abandoned old apartment to investigate further. Like we're curious. Humans are curious. She wants to do it, but uh, no, she doesn't scare easily. And I'm like, I get that. I get, I kind of, then there's that part of me like really gets where she's coming from. That yes, she has to prove herself. She does need to be better than that Purcell man. Like she, both of these women have to do everything they can to stand out because, and in, again, they themselves are, are women so they they are marginalized in mm-hmm. a way and they have to just prove themselves worthy of their thesis and, and their academic world, so... Well, and that's when she does when she goes into it like she and she looks at what she's doing as well, we're helping them if we can like if we can show that Candyman is not real and bring them back some empowerment to the community I'm helping them but really she's just still practicing the same methods that have oppressed the people of Cabrini before and this article talks about how she just goes in treats the area like her own little personal research area like I think yeah. about it she's like yeah she just goes into Ruthie Jean's apartment a woman was brutally murdered in there and just like goes in and starts taking pictures and exploring stuff like that. Doesn't mention anything to like, you know, Anne Maria's, you know, she does later on saying as to why she's there, but it's just like, she just goes in there and she just 
thinks that everything should follow her rules. Like you said, she even talks to that little boy, be like, don't worry, yeah. I'm scary easy. But show me this area, right? And you, you essentially yeah. put that little boy in danger to mm-hmm. uh, be, you know, be a victim. Candyman's like bodyguards or something, people who work in this gang. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. he showed the white woman that brought the police into uh, Cabrini Green, right? So she just, you know, she doesn't think yeah. about how what she's doing has an impact on the community. Absolutely. It's very one-sided or narrow-minded or both. It's just, yeah, she's very set in her own rules and her own world, essentially. Yeah, and that's why I like, I love about all the mirror usage, right? That true reflection yep. of society that Helen's actions were yep. selfish, naive, and endangering to the people of Cabrini Green. And she, because she wanted to be published, she wanted to prove to her husband that she's better than whoever that he's sleeping with, that she can have this academic career, that she could be on his own. And, you know, and Candyman arrives to remind her that her privilege will not keep her safe. Reminds her of the power of the racism and the racial violence that has a hold over the American consciousness because of her Mm -hmm. white privilege. Absolutely. That came up in my mind so much while I'm watching these movies, because as a white person, you know, it's it's easy to forget that you have that. And it's so prevalent. And I it's I think all I think all three of these movies are pretty confronting. And mirrors themselves are used to confront these anxieties or fear of the other with a capital O. So they reflect and show to ourselves what we've been trying to shrug off or like, well, you know, that doesn't, that maybe that's just like exaggerated or you just like, just keep pushing at the back of your mind, forget about it, hide it away. But on like a basic level, a psychological level, when we, we, I don't stare into the mirror and to call Candyman, but the folks of Candyman, the, the, the people in the Candyman story, they summon Candyman. So it's essentially saying like Candyman lurks and dwells in our subconsciousness. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so the the ghost, maybe a ghost, some kind of supernatural identity, more of a haunting maybe in Candyman too, but he's kind of I stand in for again like I said the the history that we shouldn't forget that haunts Americans or just North America because it's, you know, yep. that stuff happens here as, as well, but forces us to remember and that that history of what happened to Danny Robitaille is still not that far away. Like that shit is generally still happening, like not cutting off hands and smearing folks with honey for the bees to kill him, which is an odd way to die. But it is that racism and that violence is not gone. It is still here. And uh, the idea of thinking that it's in the past and it's history, this is all just history, is what hurts people today. Yeah, and that's why I was just thinking when you're talking about that, how interesting it is that every individual who goes to the mirror and they say that person's name and they're in Candyman or the, the mythology and they're kind of doing it jokingly, like, nah, this doesn't really exist, blah, blah, blah. Like, I'm going to prove you wrong, right? And then Candyman appears and kills them. And then by saying Candyman five times, you have ripped away the rose-tinted glasses from your eyes and mm-hmm. you're seeing the truth and you're being confronted with it. You're that this has existed and that people needed to be reminded of their history. And I loved too when the article went into the idea of washing your hands when you're looking in the mirror. And I was like, oh, I didn't even realize that. But that's like how often people often summon Candyman in the bathroom mirror. Often you're, you know, above a sink and you're washing your hands looking in the mirror. And that whole idea of like washing the guilt away from your hands, you know, because of what they took part in and witnessing and, you know, dealing with the consequences of our actions. It made me think of like Lady Macbeth in Macbeth when she's like washing the (laughs) blood of their hands and she's like you know the blood the blood of can absolutely and candyman's kind of showing us that like that mode 
of trying to wash it all away, our privilege, white people, yeah. and the history, like, that's no longer enough. Candyman is here to remind you of the savagery that has occurred and continues to occur in 2021. What I thought was also, like, one of my favorite points of that article was talking about how... Yes, Helen is like the figure of Candyman's kind of obsession um, for this uh, for this story, but nobody else can, besides black folks, uh, nobody else can see him, but Bernadette can. So when she comes into the apartment, Helen's already all mesmerized and all messed up because Candyman's been like in her mind and he's getting her prepared for another killing, but she sees him immediately. And this, this article mentioned that Bernadette would have been much more aware aware of the the history and the ways of racial violence and hatred over her, you know, friends like uh, Helen, her white associates or colleagues and friends and stuff like that. So she is therefore able to actually see him when he appears. She's able to recognize him for who he is before he kills him. Whereas so far, like at least just in this movie, Helen's the only one that can see him, but nobody else can, but Bernadette can. I thought that was really quite interesting. That is really interesting and a really great point. Should we move on to Candyman 2 and 3? Yeah, let's get into these two. Flesh and blood? I'm afraid not. But he lives in the mirror. You say his name five times, he's supposed to come. That's how he gets you. You guys don't really believe that, do you? There's no such thing as a candy man. Those three victims were John Doe's. What if it's true? What if a candy man does exist? What did you see that night? Ray's body was torn apart by something powerful. And what my brother? I'm gonna find out what happens. No! No! There are no monsters. You brought me here. The only God can save us. The terror in the mirror returns. Our journey begins. To avenge his name. Reveal his past and fulfill his destiny. What do you want from me? Death is a return, you know. In a motion picture that ends what the first one barely started. Candyman, farewell to the flesh. So, what is, what's your story surrounding Man Candyman 2, Farewell to the Flash, and Candyman 3, Day of the Dead? Uh, so, my story is Candyman 2. I watched that last year on a whim because I totally mm. forgot that there were two other films that came after Candyman. I always know of Candyman <laughs> as Candyman, and yeah. then there's yeah. two and three. Yeah. And so, you're so used to the 80s yeah. having so many sequels that there are actual other ones, too. So, I was like, okay, I'm going to, yeah. you know... 
I'm gonna watch this one. It was on Amazon. I watched it, and then this is my second watch around. And then Candyman Three was my first time watch for the podcast. Yeah. Because when I watched the second one, I was like, I'm not even gonna bother watch the third one. <laughs> I've seen Candyman Two: Farewell to the Flesh a few times over the many years okay. of being a Candyman fan. And then Candyman Three: Day of the Dead actually was a first time watch for the podcast. So got to round it all off and and see everything beginning to end. So I was happy to do that. I like again watching movies I have not seen before. So it was great. So what did you like about uh, Candyman 2 and 3? Um, <laughs> this is going to be so short. What I like about Candyman 2 is that we get more of the backdrop of Candyman. So we get a little more history, you know, for people who want some of an origin story. But then don't go into movie yeah. logic because it happens in New Orleans and not in Cabrini Green. And you're like, oh, wait, I remember they talk about this mythology in Cabrini Green. Now it's in New Orleans. So I guess it get Candyman could be representative of all of the young black men that have experienced that type of violence during mm-hmm. the time of slavery. Because that would have been mm-hmm. more prominent then, you know, especially um, interrelationships between uh, white women and uh, black men. Mm-hmm. So I, I like that we get more of that backdrop, mm-hmm. but that's all I like. Okay. How about <laughs> Candyman 3, Day of the Dead? I like nothing about this film. My last <laughs> comment on this note was, I do not like this film. And then I closed my phone and left the room. <laughs> Well, I think you are in good company with a uh, good company with a lot of people because I think they're not overall well liked, both of those sequels. For me, so Candyman 2, they're awesome. Philip Glass score is back, which yeah. is awesome. I love that. I do really like Candyman Farewell to the Flesh. Okay. I think it's a pretty decent follow up to Candyman, as iconic and important as that film is. I did really enjoy watching it. It has Veronica Cartwright, mm-hmm. yeah. which is great to see. And I'm going to butcher his name it's really I'm really sorry to him who will never listen to this but Juice Garcia anyways I forget his character's name in the movie but he's Rod from Nightmare on Elm Street I recognized him immediately oh nice okay I was like who's this hot guy I'm like oh it's Rod great I was like oh you're in another movie great Tony Todd of course yes. I like I love even though it doesn't really make a lot of sense to be set in New Orleans overall with yeah. the regards to like the overall storyline because Yep, no, that's very far away geographically. But I really liked the premise. I also liked getting more of the backstory. I thought generally the acting was really good. I liked the premise. I think overall it's a pretty powerful film. I liked it a lot. Candyman 3 Day of the Dead, a.k.a. Day of the Softcore Porn Candyman yes. version. Yes, okay, Absolutely. thank you. Thank you. Oh, <laughs> it's like a late night movie oh. on Showtime. Like the soft lighting, the music, and it was sexy. There's tons of breasts and like I'll take Tony Todd making out with somebody anytime that was fine <laughs> uh, that was weird <laughs> I enjoyed that. The only thing I really liked about truly like about Candyman 3 Day of the Dead was Tony Todd reprising his role because he is so wonderful in all of it. I like that there is still some continuation of the theme and story. But uh, yeah, so that's what I liked about those two films. Um, what did you dislike, I guess, on a, on a brief version, an abridged version of your dislikes? Oh, my <laughs> for Candyman 2, like I obviously enjoy that Tony Todd is Candyman throughout and then we don't get any changes. But what I dislike yeah. about Candyman 2 is that it almost tries too hard to be the first movie and Mm. it's too apparent 
and I just at times Candyman doesn't say a lot of his iconic lines in that movie mm-hmm. but like I said he wants her to be I want you to be my witness and mm-hmm. it was just whereas in the third movie you get Candyman saying be my victim and you're like yes yeah. <laughs> less than an yes. epic yeah. line yeah. yeah I just feel like that's why I dislike about it it just it tries too mm-hmm. hard to be the first movie instead of kind of being something on its own I would love mm-hmm. the idea that if they said the Candyman myth is everywhere the Candyman urban legend is everywhere because racism is everywhere and you know right. and kind of like yeah. bringing about that idea and just instead of like tying in Dr. Purcell I was like you know because I keep trying to tie in these movies like you know in the yeah. and you get the same thing in the third movie you get Carolyn in the second movie she's like main character in the third movie yeah and then yeah the third movie it's just a terrible movie and I hated it <laughs> <laughs> No, like there's, I'm not, I, yeah. yes, you said it carries on all the themes of racism, misogyny, mm-hmm. sexism, all of the, but it just, and then also like in the S in the third one, they talk about racism in the form of not just against um, black Americans, mm-hmm. but against like Spanish Americans like that, you know, yep. especially in LA, but yep. like, and it's cool because they jump from place to place. You got Chicago, New Orleans, and in LA. So racism yep. exists everywhere, but they could have done such a better job with that. Right. So execution, you weren't a fan of. No, thank you. <laughs> so okay. Candyman 2, the uh, the very 90s CGI at the end. Yes. Woo. Yeah. Some like odd acting choices by Kelly Rowan, who plays Annie, the, the main protagonist in Candyman 2. Candyman 3, there's no Philip Glass score. So that's like a big, big no-no and downer for me that I don't like in the CGI. But also it's 90s CGI. I get that. It was like up and coming, but like 90s CGI is cheesy as hell. Yeah. <laughs> when I watch Candyman 2, Farewell to the Flesh, again? Yes. Would I watch Day of the Dead again? No. Yes. I agree with you on that. Two is rewatchable. <laughs> Three is trash fire. <laughs> there you go. How many ways can I describe this movie as how horrible it is? <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll see by the end of the episode. <laughs> <laughs> so for this special Black History Month episode of I Spin Your Podcast, we have a guest clip from a friend of mine and fan and supporter of the podcast. Her name is Carolyn Morissette. Carolyn Morissette is a Toronto-based film writer critic focuses on horror, fantasy, and sci-fi genres. She founded the website View from the Dark, where she dives deep into race and representation of people in color in genre film or lack thereof. She's also a film programmer and development coordinator for the Blood in the Snow Canadian Film Festival and a contributing author to the first edition of the Women in Horror Annual, the Encyclopedia of Japanese Horror Films, and the Encyclopedia of Racism in American Films. You can find other pieces she's written on diversity and women in sci-fi on the website Graveyard Shift sisters and film reviews on cinemaxis.com and also Hollywood Suite. She has her own podcast and in where they talk about film which she co-hosts and it's called Really Melanated. So here are her thoughts on the legacy of Candyman. In 1992, writer and director Bernard Rose adapted a story written by Clive Barker called The Forbidden from Barker's Books of Blood Volume 6 and created one of the most iconic horror characters to this day. From a short story to the big screen, Candyman is the first black slasher of the horror genre. In Barker's story, the main character was white, but Rose changed this to be the spirit of a well-to-do black artist who we later find out is Daniel Robitaille. Robitaille fell in love with a white woman he was commissioned to paint. Her father had him lynched for his step outside of societal and racial boundaries. 
His myth is explored by Helen, a PhD student who becomes obsessed with Candyman, more so to prove the condescending Professor Purcell wrong, and soon becomes Candyman's target when she skeptically conjures his spirit. The implications of that race dynamic in the film adaptation created horror history. Candyman covers race-based brutality and injustice in the past and present, class, racism, and gentrification. There are also some issues with the motivations of Candyman, like his endless pursuing of white women, the fact that he terrorizes black people, the narrative of big black men terrorizing white spaces, and demonizing urban environments in disrepair and disarray through no fault of the residents. According to Dr. Robin R. Means Coleman, who wrote the black horror tome Horror Noir, Blacks in American Horror Films from the 1890s to present, and they've also made a um, documentary on Shudder based on the book, which everyone should check out. Candyman is considered a Blacks in Horror film because although it brings up several themes of race, it still plays on racial tropes and the original story isn't Black. And the team behind it, or those who put the concepts into play, are white. There are two sequels to Candyman, Farewell to the Flesh, done in 1995, where we meet a frustrated artist and teacher, Annie Terran, in New Orleans, who finds out she is a descendant of Daniel Robitaille. In Candyman 3, Day of the Dead, in done in 1999, which, by the way, was so bad I couldn't look at my screen straight on, we have a Latinx theme in Los Angeles and Annie's daughter Caroline, also an artist, as the Candyman's main target. So we all know that Candyman is invoked when you say his name five times in a mirror. According to Rose, he's the combination of the Bloody Mary and Man with the Hook Hen legend. But Rose manages to combine a gothic feel to this hybrid of urban legend that works really well and makes a really compelling and genuinely scary film. I saw Candyman when it premiered in Toronto and Tony Todd was in attendance. He towered over the crowd and my friends and I had to look all the way up as we passed by him and he nodded to us when we were walking past and we were so stoked that the Candyman acknowledged us. I actually think it's a gorgeous film and it's unique in its complexity and controversy. Uh, It also came out after the Rodney King verdict, which is really key in black history, in modern black history. Like the black existence, brutality towards us has to be witnessed or summoned before it can be believed. The superstitious others showcased in all three films, living in Cabrini Green, in New Orleans and the Latinx neighborhoods in LA are used to give the Candyman myth power. They all see the truth of the legend and the legacy of mistreatment of POC and black people specifically and the denial of black lineage and our pain. Helen's dismissal of the myth incites Candyman's anger as he proves that he is in fact real and will not be forgotten. It's an allegory of black rage as our experiences are denied time and time again. I think the adapted script is excellent. I think also the film is a horror classic and Tony Todd got the recognition he deserved as a veteran stage actor. 
Rose has said that irrational fear is the basis of racism, uh, and he wanted to explore the dark heart of American history. I think he's pretty woke as a director for all the film's controversy, and he didn't want to make a movie with a happy ending, which reflects obviously the ongoing racial unrest in North America and all over the world. I wanted to also point out that mirrors are powerful portals to predict or see the future. Um, in many religions, mirrors are covered when someone dies so that the spirit isn't trapped on this plane. Of course, mirrors are the main conduit in Candyman, and if you'll notice, they are actual portals that Helen discovers when she pulls out the bathroom mirror and sees that it goes into another apartment. When we look into a mirror, we have to literally face ourselves. So I think the Candyman franchise asks all the white characters to face the wrongs and centuries of mistreatment of black people. Candyman, as I said before, is the embodiment of our anger. And once white people face themselves, it's an act of self-reflection and they have to face our anger and the oppression that's been perpetuated. Helen is also catapulted into a black person's experience once everyone starts doubting her. Even though Helen is looking into the mirror, and this could be a self-reflective moment, it's nothing but an ego boost to prove the legend wrong in her eyes. What I'm really looking forward to is the Nia DaCosta reboot. Even though Candyman is now a classic horror film, I wonder if in some ways it's diluting the struggle of black people into an urban myth. And when storytellers aren't from the group they're writing about, it loses power and authenticity. DaCosta's taking the story over with a black perspective, and I'm excited to see what she does with it. Just wanted to say thanks to the Spinsters of Horror for giving me a chance to give my take on Candyman and You Rock. Thank you so much to Carolyn for her invaluable and insightful contribution to this episode. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Carolyn. So moving on into our discussion of Candyman 2 and Candyman 3. So we've talked about mirrors. We'll talk a bit more about mirrors, but more portals. Yeah. Because mirrors can be used as portals. So portals are essentially the point at which one enters and leaves a space. Portaling mirrors in certain traditions around the world can be used to bridge realities which also implies a barrier. So the distinction between inside and outside bears a number of different things cross-culturally. The known and the unknown, safety and danger, and then sacred and profane. And this is highly relevant to the story and films about Candyman. Yeah, because like using a mirror as like a passage to another world, like you're being able to be go back and forth between the past and the future. And this is what's really important in Candyman Tune is that we learn so much about his past and his past is reflected in this mirror image, in this mirror that we see as a hand mirror held, um, held by his beloved Carolyn, who is the source of kind of his power or source of uh, his existence. Mm -hmm. Because it's not until the mirror is broken that he comes out of existence, that mm -hmm. but he's no longer able to transverse back into our world, right? Because that's mm -hmm. the, the portal, the mirror is his gateway into our world. And it's almost like thinking about all the films now, if we're thinking about a generalized theme about like racism and the history of Candyman or Daniel Robitaille, sorry, I should call him by his name. But, you know, talking about the inside and the outside, it's definitely that barrier. And there is that barrier when it comes to kind of the racial divide in these films of white privilege. And again, I can like, I am white. I know that that is a thing that exists. Yeah. There is this, I, again, safety and danger, like definitely 
with regards to Candyman 1, we know that you go into Cabrini Green, we're going from our safe place, which is our upper middle class area of the city, into our quote, quote, quote unquote, dangerous place of Cabrini Green. Yeah, and we get that in this film because we see New Orleans, right? And we're seeing the different districts and the very different communities. The character of Annie, she comes from a higher upper class southern family who has had a history of owning slaves, you know, and so she comes from a very different world and then, but she teaches underprivileged youth in this community that uh, that is very once again impoverished by yes. having a lot of impoverished black people um, because this is essentially where a lot of slavery came from it came from the south and so it's very representative in, in this film so we are definitely still getting that element of not only uh, classism but racism as well in these two in these two different ages just in a different area and so like once again I like how you mm-hmm. can use that idea of like a portal a mirror portal image you're at Candyman can exist everywhere because racism and classism exist everywhere. Absolutely. Great point. Yeah. And I do love that each movie is set in a different place that is definitely known for the racism and that quote, great divide between different areas of an urban center, like a metropolis, like, like a New York or an LA or like even here in Toronto, you know, New Orleans is not like this big metropolis, but there is a very stark divide in classes and, and races there. Un- unfortunately, it still exists today. Man, we don't even talk about Hurricane Katrina and how that was handled for, for a lot of those folks that live down in there. And all three films show like very impoverished, uh, quote, dangerous, downtrodden kind of places where these, well, all these three white women are venturing into and then they themselves kind of like kind of come into danger while they're trying to learn about this history. And a part of what I do really enjoy about Farewell to the Flesh or Candyman 2 is we do get that reflections of our past because it's not just necessarily Daniel Robitaille's or Candyman's past. It's Annie's past. It's Annie's family's past. Yes. She is deeply connected to that. And her mother is hiding this away because her their name will be connected to Candyman and she does not want that connected to that person. And you could think of it even going further that she's just ashamed of their past. Maybe it's a race issue or just how her family dealt with that issue. It could be a lot of those reasons combined, but hiding the past doesn't make it go away. And our mirrors are reflecting that in this film. Like you can't look, Candyman is here. Daniel Robitaille is here. He's coming after your daughter because she is a part of his blood. And like, he is their bloodline. He is, she is his kin essentially. And you can't take that away. And that like, I really like that, reveal of her like ancestral kind of relationship to to Candyman and the fact that he was a she worked on sorry her family had a plantation and they had that big massive house and they had like the quote slave quarters in the back which is terrible but again bringing it even further into our eyes and into our faces to to remind us of not just Daniel Robitaille's past but Annie's family's past and then in the third one Caroline's family history and just reminding us that you can't you can't run from your past I guess we can't run for your past but it's also yeah it's exactly it's addressing a lot of family lore which is a lot of uh, families are connected to some form of trauma of national history 
We we all yeah. know that it's all we you know at some point or another we've in our backs both of our backstories have been have had some sort of relative or family connected to some sort of national tragedy, some sort of historical atrocity, something that we need to address and, and but as you said Annie's family does is they try to hide it away and they try to you know her father tried to kill Candyman he literally tried to snuff out their yeah. family past to protect their family right and people do that yeah. people literally yeah. will go out and if they know that they have some corn some something to hide right mirrors reveal secrets or people can yes. hide secrets in mirrors best way to do is just make sure that it never exists and you wipe it out of existence so he tried to wipe daniel robotite out of existence once again trying to you know literally in quotes whitewash their history by saying oh no we were never we never owned slaves we didn't have like there wasn't an interracial child like we are pure blood and you're like "Mm, that's not right at all yeah no no, absolutely not. And what I f- saw in Candyman 2 as well, going back to that article we talked about with Bernadette and how she can see Candyman, yeah. or the theory that she can see him, mm-hmm. she is reacting to something. So I think it's pretty obvious that she actually can see Candyman. Or is she seeing Helen? Anyways, I think she's seeing Candyman. I'll just go with that. I think she is. And in Candyman 2, Farewell to the Flesh, Annie's brother is like the prime suspect in all of these killings. So when he is stuck in like an interrogation room and a cop is brutally massacred and like he is brutally slain there is what the like one of the main detectives on the case of these killings um and of annie's brother's case who is a woman of color she sees Candyman, or at least sees that somebody else is doing the killing and it's not her brother so i kind of feel like that ties into what they that article was talking about with regards to bernadette being able to see so this woman of color is able to see that the brother did not kill him. It was an unseen force, but it was not him. So she was able to at least, quote, see that Candyman was the one that was actually doing it. So I thought that that was also an interesting kind of like tie in together with with the first movie. Well, she definitely and two, she helps Anne um, in, yeah. in the movie. She helps her to escape because she's like, I saw something. I know I saw something that was and yep. I'm going to go help you. You're clearly doing what you need to do. So I think yeah. that was a really that's a really great point and really interesting. And what do you think about the fact that it is uh, that it is three blonde white women who are mm. bringing this to our attention, right? Who are fighting against Candyman or trying to reveal the truth? Because we see this later on in Candyman Three, where Caroline she's yeah. displaying those paintings because she wants to the she wants the world to know the truth of yes. Daniel Robotai and about their yep. history of her family. Yeah. That he was a man and a good man, and this is what we should remember of him, and not this terrible fucking Candyman myth. Yeah, that's kind of true. Yeah, <laughs> and it's a lot. What were your thoughts around that? It's three white women. Yeah, I always just I always wondered about that. Like, why we use that eye? Why we use that vehicle? Yeah, yeah, because in theory they were an interracial couple, Carolyn and Daniel Robitaille, right? So why is everybody our quote? predominant white blondes. Maybe it's tying back into one of the problematic aspects of Candyman, which is the white savior, like our our black men are lusting and taking over our white women. And that's kind of like this trope of black men. Maybe it's just an unfortunate aspect of that film trope. Yeah. Um, 
I'm not exactly sure. You know, I feel like maybe they're just tying that in. Like if they were going to be truly authentic, they would probably should have either had like a multi-biracial person playing a descendant of Candyman. Well, I'm like, this is why I'm also so excited for the new version that's going to come out. Absolutely. Nia DaCosta's, right? And I I didn't realize that the main protagonist in that film is going to be the little baby, is going to be the baby from the first film. Like, uh, Oh, it's going to be Jake? It's going to be Jake. Oh, Oh, the baby baby. The baby, like the baby. baby that saved. The, ba- oh. the baby that Helen saves. That apparently in the film, it continues the story of him growing up right. and becoming a painter. And, th- and I was just like, oh, that's right. going to be so amazing. Oh, my God. Yeah. Why don't we just briefly talk about that remake? Because I don't normally get too excited or too invested in, in remakes. Um, I don't really. I'm very neutral about remakes. But this one, I think like, I'm really excited about this one. I, th- I think it's going to do what a remake or at least is it a remake or is it like kind of like a scene? It's it's a reimagining. I was reading an article. Um, it was actually in the Rue Morgue magazine of with Nia DaCosta, and that it's more of like a, a reimagining yeah. of the story. And I was like, yeah, forty years later, let's tell that story. That's I like to know, like what's happening now in this story. Like it's forty years later. What's going on? Yeah, if that was the baby. Like let's carry this on. Let's see where the the legend is now. Where are they now? And I'm really excited to hear this story coming from not only a woman but a woman of color and. And like this, I'm really, really excited about. And normally I'm not too excited about remakes, especially of beloved films of, of mine. Um, I, I'm so excited to see this. And I think I already just like foresee that it's going to be a fantastic fantastic film yeah I echo a lot of your sentiments I when I saw the trailer I was just like yes oh yes I am seeing this movie and like (laughs) and so I was so disappointed when it got pushed back and I don't I can't even I don't even remember when it's it's supposed to it's supposed to come out this year right 2021 I hope so yeah well (sighs) we'll see I guess I just don't want (laughs) to I don't want to keep getting my hopes up because I really can't wait to see it because I think it's going to be a wonderful film yeah and that's one I would love to see in theaters if they release it just going ahead when it's not in theaters whatever I will spend the money and I will definitely buy like rent this movie but that is one I really want to see in theaters that's like a movie theater going experience yeah so I'm excited about that okay so bringing it back to your point what did you think about having our three main protagonists just being just like I'm gonna say plain white blonde women typical that you would see in a horror movie I like the idea that Helen was a part of the first one because she's able to still connect the original movie to the short story and so that makes sense to me but then when they carry on that trope with Anne and Carolyn like yeah you're right there I think they're trying to do is reconnect that story to keep that that story going of the interracial relationship and kind of addressing those those issues and concerns um, that people used to have and how people have to get over that and address that whole idea about interracial couples but at the same time too though I just felt it was very tropey and yes Absolutely. I didn't like it because it's like, because the part of me is like, well, are you using women because we're more sensitive to supernatural stuff and we'll be more open? Like, we're more empathetic to this story. Like, you can see the lesson, Helen. She's more curious, but that's like yeah. the start, quote unquote, of this whole kind of story. And then I feel like Annie is quite empathetic to like the whole thing. And then you have Carolyn that wants to show the humanity in Candyman, show the humanity of Daniel Robitaille. So maybe, and I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. Yes, 
we are generally very sensitive and emotional and empathetic. So I agree with you. And I don't think that's a bad thing at all. But wouldn't it be a more powerful film if it was a white man? Right. Because he starts to learn like, you know, or Mm -hmm. right. Mm -hmm. Because because the issues come from white men trying to dominate other human beings. So I I get where they came from as films of their time. Mm-hmm. So this is also why I'm, I'm super curious to see how the new yeah. film is going to be. Yeah. From a different perspective, that's not a white man's. Absolutely. Like Annie's child could have been a little boy. Yeah. You know, and that could have been a different story. But maybe it's because each woman is still representation of Caroline. Yeah, that's His true. original love of the original story. So if you want to keep that consistent... All right, that's fine. Yeah. You know, if that's where their headspace was at at the time when creating these films. Yeah. To make it a little, like, to mix it up a little bit, it would have been nice to see something a bit different. Um, the ideas that I'm thinking now are more for our time, like, our like for our day and age, because we're, yeah. we're looking for that. We want those wounds being healed, and we want to end those divides. So... Yeah, absolutely. Um, and to oh, go go ahead. I was Sorry. just gonna say, I was like, what did you think about in the third film the very overt racism and misogyny and toxic masculinity throughout that film? Besides the fact that it was there and it was really unfortunate. Yeah. Um. <laughs> well, it was. I, I like to me, like I remember watching it and being like, okay, this is this is kind of like a realistic portrayal of someone who is very racist and identifying that whole systematic racism within the police force mm-hmm. and that inspector oh, yeah. also the misogyny towards. Carolyn and how that police officer thought he owned her based on like one meeting with her. Well, yep. okay. Yep. I know. Well, you know, thinking about the third film, yeah, absolutely. It's, you know, I think each sequel, like I said, is kind of like a reminder of racism and, and violence against people of color. And as a reminder that this is something that's still prevalent. And what's interesting and what I did, I guess, you know, I guess this is one thing I really liked about Day of the Dead, Candyman 3, is that in the end, the actual real villain in that story was that super racist white cop. Yes. Because at the end of that movie, Candyman is defeated. He's, quote, killed off. He's done. But then that very racist cop comes back to try to kill her and her friend. And then the wonderful black detective in her on her case yes. and in her brother's case comes in and saves the day and kills that motherfucker. Yeah. So that was amazing. I was really happy to see that. And it like carried on like Candyman's dead, but you know what? Who's the real villain? Racism. Systematic racism. Yes, the way, absolutely. Yeah, the way that, and that's a great way how it ends a film. But then like, once again, then it's like, oh, well, this film became very slasher and it really amped up the graphic kills and it took that really... Yeah important messaging of Candyman, that story of Daniel Robitaille, they made it uh, like a token horror film of the time. And I, mm-hmm. it rem- for some reason, it reminded me of a lot of the older can- uh, Hellraiser movies. Um, sorry, mm. not the older, but like, you know, Hellraiser 5 and 6, oh, yeah. right? Where they yeah. have those graphic yeah. kills and it's like a cult-like, there's a Candyman cult. And it's just like, what? What is happening? You're kind of making oh, a yes. mockery of yeah. this. Yeah, I get what you're saying. And I get why folks maybe wouldn't like Candyman 2 and 3. I think because even though the execution is a little wonky, I think that the general underlying theme and commentary is still there in all the sequels. So I I commend them for that. I do really like that. And even if they take it to some weird places that aren't maybe the best way, I still really respect that they kept that going and some might disagree. But I personally think, and from my own perspective and lens, that the the commentary was still there. And I really was happy to see that because you wonder, right? Like, are they going to carry this on throughout the sequels? Are they going to dumb it down? And the third one, like it was just, it was, 
in your face. And like you said, they showed racism towards other types of folks, actual police brutality, um, which they didn't really, they didn't get into in the other two films. They bring that up in the third one. Like that's very scandalous, especially, I think it came out in like 99 or something. And it was amazing to, to, to see that. I I was happy, I guess, in a way, question mark, happy to see that. Yeah. So based on this discussion with you, I'm, I'm seeing, like I'm seeing the merits of Candyman 3, but the execution was so poor <laughs> and just the way yeah. they directed characters and how they made them and the dialogue just ugh. I was like yeah you have such strong elements here you could it could have been yeah. a better movie so I also feel like the budget was like slashed completely yeah. so it's a very like straight to you know video type film um, so I'm just probably a portion of that just and I think this you know. is going to come up when we talk about 90s horror villains is that yep. they're not so big about the sequels back then they were more like okay right you know yeah. they, if they thought they had a hit they would go with it but if the second one didn't do well like oh maybe we'll do a third one but then it goes direct to video which ends up happening to yeah. Hellraiser absolutely yep which was very different than the time of the 80s where it was like hit hit yeah. Exactly. Box office, box office. Yeah, the 90s. So a note of Candyman 3 Day of the Dead that I saw here about mirrors. So it was a quote from the film and it might have been said by Caroline, but but they said the soul of a good man. So the soul of a good man is reflected in these paintings. So Daniel Robitaille's paintings. So the paintings are reflecting the goodness of Candyman than the mirrors are showing his mistreatment. And I I, I thought that that was really, really interesting because again, we say his name in the mirror and it's his past and his savagery of the sense of what was done to him is again, shown right back to us because that hook is terrifying and bl- always bloody and wet. It's always wet. He's just so busy killing, I guess, that it's just always so moist. <laughs> predominantly in the first film it's always wet yeah blood. predominantly well I, I really like that <laughs> that it, that quote because yeah when you do think of art a lot of artists they put their souls in their work right in the way they reflect yep. themselves are in their work so of course Daniel Robitaille would, would paint the most beautiful things of yep. himself and of Caroline because that's what he's seeing that's how he sees himself and that's how he wants to show the world and so when yep. he, like you said he had that savagery done to him all that negative energy and all that hurt and fear and pain and everything got absorbed into yep. the mirror and then, re- then uh, this reflection of cruelty like comes out and and that's to make people aware of your your actions have consequences so you need to realize this that your past is going to come back and haunt you and then you know you you have to take the it it literally takes all the bad out of you and one one of the things i had a thought too is i remember watching for the second film at the end when she gets um caroline's hand mirror and goes to break it i i had this crazy thought i'm like huh this is like the Beauty and the Beast of the horror genre. This film right now. <laughs> oh, oh yeah, absolutely. Candyman, these ladies. Yep. Yeah, it's just good, just because like if anyone's seen Beauty and the Beast, the Disney film, you know, the Beast sees himself in the mirror, right? And he sees himself yeah. as a beast, and when he finally recognizes the good within him, he sees himself as a good part, right? Yeah, and also violence begets violence. Yes, exactly. The last thing that I really have to say about all of this is I noticed in Candyman 2, and it carries on in 3, that is very, very, very different than Candyman 1. He brought this up earlier, but I wanted to wait to bring it up, is that Candyman starts saying, be my witness. 
And I think that that is a very powerful thing for him to start saying. Okay, yeah. Because he wants people to witness what was done to him. They yes, want, they okay. need to see it. They, everybody needs to continue to see this. Like he says in the first film, this is a part of the folklore. His And his like urban legend, so to speak, is that he constantly has to almost like, re, rem, like remind everyone every few years of like, oh, this happened to me. Because yep. like each film is like maybe five years later, like in movie time frame yeah. or even longer sorry because the daughter in the second one is a grown woman so maybe it's like 20 years later and we're like oh now we have forgotten about this we need to remind you and constantly remind you so be my witness yeah and so that was really powerful to me and oh god now I'm gonna get emotional sorry okay um so May 25th 2020 was the day that George Floyd was killed and so what came to my mind was uh which was really again powerful to me to watch these films now like maybe 10 years ago I would it wouldn't have really stood out to me, but be my witness. And we all witnessed some terrible, terrible police brutality and a tragedy on that day. And that rocked the entire planet. This stuff happens all the time. But again, as, as white people, we, it's so easy for us to forget that there are people that live in, in fear for their lives all the time. It is a very different experience for them to be in the world. And I think it's important that Candyman starts saying, be my witness, because he needs people to to see what was done to him so we do not forget. We need to see what's done to, to black folks all over the world and just never, pretty much never fucking forget that this is a thing that happens on a day-to-day basis. <clears throat> Thank you for sharing that. I agree. Should we move on to Spencer's final thoughts? I think so. And now we've arrived at Spencer's final thoughts, this time over a nice warm cup of tea provided by our new sponsor, Brutalities. Since we're Spencer's, we obviously love tea. One of our favorite things is to curl up with a movie on a cold, rainy day. Or a good book. Yes, with a hot mug of delicious tea. Brutalities is a company that we discovered at a horror convention and fell in love with. They have a variety of tea blends from black, white, and more. But what really stood out to us was not just how yummy they were, but their spooky names. With Chai the 13th and Children of the Candy Corn, we thought Brutalities were a perfect match made in hell. I love coconut. And I'm currently obsessed with Screamsicle. So go to Brutalities.com to grab some for yourself with listener code SPINSTER15 to get 15% off your purchase. For our Canadian listeners, please contact them directly before ordering for shipping quotes. So now that we have our tea, let's put these spirits to rest. So normally I kind of like sit and like write up a whole like pre-scripted thing. But I think a lot of my thoughts about the series and I guess racism and my own white privilege was talked about throughout uh, this episode. But as always, folks, fucking Black Lives Matter and never forget that. Exactly. The Candyman franchise, it was a series that started out very strongly and unfortunately with the third film it sadly became a victim of an industry that just wants to profit and it was unfortunate that the film and the idea that it was based on it wasn't as executed as perfectly as I had hoped it would be because it has such powerful material in each of the three films and both Candyman and its original short story The Forbidden were stories that were able to provide much needed social commentary about classism and most importantly racism and how much the ignorance and actions of others can literally threaten a whole community. Daniel Robotel's 
story is tragic and it is really tragic because it is a reality and it's the reality then for a lot of black men and women uh, during the time of slavery and then throughout North American history and it's a history that has impacted people for generations and continues to impact people for generations so even though this film came out in the 1990s it has many issues and it highlights many items that are still very relevant and still happening today just as Kelly mentioned earlier Black Lives Matter you need to say something and stand up and help to make that change we witnessed something back in May that changed the world and we need to keep going with that momentum because what's really interesting with Candyman and looking in the mirror and calling his name is that the mirror provides to us a reflection of what is happening no matter how much you try to turn a blind eye to it and folks that ends our first episode on 1990s horror villains and that ends our discussion on Candyman we would like to thank Dance of the Dead for our intro outro music Robeast and Brandon for all of his hard work on our promotional materials also thank you to all of our dedicated listeners we would like to remind you to follow us on our website spinsersofhorror.com our Facebook page Spinsters of Horror please join our Facebook group the Spinsters of Horror Coven and come hang out with us we are also on Twitter at Horror Spinsters and Instagram at Spinsters of Horror as well please rate and review us on iTunes SoundCloud Stitcher and any other podcasting app that you listen to us on we also have merch please visit TeePublic to purchase our t-shirts and buy stickers from our shop and donate next month is Spinsters Choice which is my choice and I have chosen the campy cult class reanimator from 1985 so until then remember the future of fear is female